The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. What's good, everybody, and welcome to Sports Talk New York here on Long Island's GBB. A happy new year to you all. Happy holidays. It's time for a fresh start. I'm Andy Sukum. I'll be your host here for a special two-hour WGBB Sports Talk on this Sunday evening, January 1st, 2023. On the show tonight, we're going to start off with Jose Young from MMAFighting.com, followed by Rich Lisk, the EVP of the New York Riptide, who play in the National Lacrosse League, and then Gerald Borgay from... Phoenix Sports will be joining us to preview the Suns and Knicks game that will be going on tomorrow at Madison Square Garden. Before we begin, I just want to remind everyone that you can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You can also visit our website at WGBBSportsTalk.com where you can listen to all past shows and check out any upcoming show information. And if you don't already, please subscribe to the podcast WGBB Sports Talk New York on iTunes, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else that you get your podcast. It's January 1st. New Year at people. You get, everybody gets the, the flurry of text from family, friends, significant others that all wish you a happy New Year. And one of the best things about New Year is a fresh start. You, you think about all, all the things you did in the previous year, all the things you saw, what, who you hung out with. We finally got a new season of Stranger Things after what felt like forever. And, and you, and you think what's, what's gonna be what I do in 2023, in the next year? What, what am I gonna do? And one of the things that I said that I wanted to see in 2022 was I wanted to see the Jets be good. And for about 10 weeks, we had that. They were sitting at six and three going into late November. They were sitting at seven and four going into December. And then the last month of the year. And the first day of this one. And what did we get? As Jets fans, we got our hearts crushed again. And how and when we saw how what promise they had and what they what they were coming to to have it end as badly as it did is just completely deflating. And what I, what I can, what I'm going to talk about them later, you're not going to want to miss. But now we're going to welcome our first guest today from MMAfighting.com, Jose Youngs. Jose, thank you for taking the time. What's up, boss? How you doing? I'm doing good. Hope you had a nice holiday and enjoyed your New Year's yesterday. Well, the Packers just won. I just won my fantasy football championship, so 2023 is off to a fantastic start. <laughs> yeah, that that is a really good start. Like, I mean, who, who's going to say no to winning fantasy football as, a, as the first thing hey, you do? Hey, man, this is the first year in a long time where I sat down and said, I am going to try to win this game. Now, week one, I can't remember what week was, but a few weeks ago I lost Debo Samuel and Damian Pierce. I got to tell you, Cam Akers and Devontae Smith stepped up big time. So the trophy's coming home. There, there it is, and I, I and I hope it's a nice one. <laughs> it better be. I've never seen it. I've never won. Well, I, I have I have hope for you. But we'll jump we'll jump right in. Uh, you're you're turned over. We're now in 2023. Let's go. Let's look back at 2022. What were some of your favorite fights of of the year? 
That's my personally my favorite fight of the year was Yuri Prohaska when he submitted Glove to Share. I believe it was UFC, I want to say 275 or somewhere in there. Uh, that was in Singapore in June, and I, I will put on record, I think that's the greatest fight I've ever seen, I've ever witnessed live. And I've been, I've been cage side. I saw Robbie Lawler fight Roy McDonald. I've seen Yoani and Jay Chick fight Zhang Weili. I've seen Justin Gaethje fight. Uh, Michael Chandler, I've seen the best of the best. Year Prohaska's victory over Glove to share in June, I think will be the best fight. It's going to be one of those fights that will perennially be forever in the five greatest fights in the history of the UFC. So I think that's the best. Uh, there's obviously some great, other great ones like Michael Chandler versus Dustin Poirier was a, was a fantastic one. Um, Mateo Scamra versus Armin Sarukian was a other fantastic one. Uh, Kevin Holland, Stephen Thompson in December was just a striker's delight. That was just a really crazy back and forth war. There were there were a ton, a ton of fantastic ones. But I think year perhaps a global share uh, will forever be one of the greatest fights I witnessed live. Man, I, I I do remember that fight, and I I do agree with you that like that goes up with like the Bonner the Bonner Griffins of the world, and like where that like when people say what fights do you should you watch to become a fan of the sport that that is one of them. Yeah, that's going to be a fight where if you want it, like that's a fight if you're an MMA fan and you're trying to get someone to be an MMA fan and you want to sit down and go, just watch this fight, Globe to Share versus Yuri Prohaska is the perfect fight to pick. Uh, what Was there any fighters that kind of came out of nowhere and like really surprised you with their with a meteoric rise or someone that you thought maybe had championship aspirations at the beginning of the year and just fell all the way down the ladder? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I don't know if any. I don't think there were any major surprises this year, uh, because we had a lot of this year more specifically than like any other year. We've had a lot of like blue call, like blue chip prospects make their debut as like they're they're all under like twenty five, like like Muhammad Mahayev and Raul Rosas Jr. and Tetsuya Tyra. Like these guys are all like twenty two, twenty three years old, and they all made their UFC debuts, and they had a lot of hype about them coming in, and they knocked it out of the park. I think Muhammad Mahayev is going to be the flyweight champion of the world at some point. Royal Rosas is, I believe, 18 years old, so he can't even, like, and he just won his UFC debut. Like, his favorite fighter growing up was Robbie Lawler, and Robbie Lawler is still fighting in the UFC. So those guys, there were a lot of, this was the year of, like, prospects. Or Jailton Almeida, which won Rookie of the Year on our our website, went 3-0, and at heavyweight with all finishes. I think if you look at him, just like he, as they say, he looks good getting off the bus. Like he's tall, he's muscular. Uh, the only thing that separates him from the other guys is he's already like in his 30s. These other kids are all 22, 23 years old. I can't think of a lot of fighters that kind of fell by the wayside. Uh, I guess Kevin Holland had two pretty bad losses back to back, but his fights aren't, he's never been in a boring fight, I should say. So he'll always have like a place. Outside of that, there's not a ton of fighters that just kind of disappeared from the top of the rankings and just kind of stuck, tumbled down. Um, Jorge Masvidal, I guess, still hasn't won a fight in God knows how long, but he's still always popular. So I guess it depends on how you look at it. Like Jorge Masvidal hasn't won in a long time, but he's very popular. So at one side, he's a great prize fighter. At the other side, he's not going to be fighting for the title anytime soon. We're talking with Jose Young from MMAfighting.com. Uh, what, what was, from top to bottom, what would you say was your favorite card of the year? 
Ooh, the UFC 281 that was in New York, Madison Square Garden, in November was, in terms of, like, like finishes, that was one of the best fight cards, like, I've top to bottom I've ever seen. There were exciting moments. There were two title changes. Zhang Weili beat Carlos Barz by submission. And, of course, Alex Pereira beat Israel Adesanya in the main event. They obviously had Justin Poirier, Michael Chandler. You had Dan Hooker, Claudio Puelas, Chris Gutierrez, sent Frankie Edgar into retirement with a flying knee. So, like, that card specifically, if you're just a fan of violent finishes, that was the fight. That was the whole fight card to, to watch. But the first UFC London card, I would say, in March, to me, stands out the most because the UFC hadn't been to London since the beginning of the pandemic. And they were supposed to go in March 2020. Obviously, everyone knows what happens. The world kind of shut down. And then they tried to schedule two more cards in London, and they just couldn't, they just couldn't make it work because of the pandemic. So when the USC finally touched down in London, they loaded the card with British fighters. They went undefeated. All the British fighters won, and they won in spectacular, like, spectacular performance. Patty Pimblett got the big win. Tom Aspinall got the big win. Molly McCann got the back, spinning back elbow. Arnold Allen won. It was a great day for the Brits, and it was in the O2 arena in London. And you all, you've all seen how British fans of any sport act. So I would say that first UFC London card in March stands out as the most thrilling. But in terms of just violent finishes, UFC 280, it's hard to beat UFC 281. That's one of the most memorable cards I've ever seen. And speaking of one of those fighters on that card, Patty Pimble, like he, he was, I, I would say, one of the most popular fighters of the year. Like sure. it, it seems like everybody loves him, and like he's going that he will, assuming he continues to win, will be in. The, I think could be in the title picture in the next year or so. Yeah, it's. I think his if he keeps winning, he will solely because of how popular he is. I think the fans and the promotion will kind of will him into the title shot, but they'll have to make these matchups real careful because, like, if you remember, like Conor McGregor beat Dustin Poirier in like his third or fourth fight in the UFC. Patty Pimla is not fighting anyone remotely close to Dustin Poirier's age. Like I, no, a lot no. of people, including myself. Think Jared Gordon, New York's own, beat Patty Pimblett in Las Vegas. If you look at MMA decisions, which which takes the all the media score, the public scorecards from media members, it's like th- forty scorecards and thirty nine of them scored for Jared Gordon. If you look at this website, Tapology, which is like fans submit their scorecards, it's like ninety seven percent think Jared Gordon won. So like, I don't like to use the word robbery because sometimes the fight is just close. That fight was a robbery. Yeah, like I, I, Patty Pimblett. Patty Pimblett did not show anything to me that shows he can fight for the title anytime soon. But just based on popularity, I think he they might will him into the title picture. Yeah, like I, I I agree with you on that. I I I went I watched the fight the second time the next day just to be like okay maybe I missed something, and yeah. I I was, I was like I'm I was watching like I don't know where the judges came to that, but that I guess that's why they get paid the big bucks to do it and. We're, we're talking about it. I don't even think they get paid the big bucks. I just think they made a mistake and we're going to, we're going to be talking about that scorecards for a long, long time. And these, it's going to be a trivia question. What's the biggest robbery in UFC history? And the answer could be Patty Pimlet versus Jared Gordon. Yes. And one of, one of the last cards of 2022 was yesterday, the, uh, Bellator versus Ryzen in Saitama, Japan. Did you get to yeah. check that out at all? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, Bell, like I, I'm a big fan. Of cross promotion, like when Bellator uh, did this, does the stuff with Ryzen, 
or like when the UFC did the stuff with Pride back in like the early 2000s. I'm a really, really big fan of that. Obviously, the UFC won't do it because it doesn't benefit them. Uh, it usually benefits the other promotion, but I like how Bellator and the UFC and, and Rise and Trade fighters sort of, like Kyoji Horiguchi went over to Bellator for a while. I remember a couple of years ago, like Michael Venom Page fought in the, in the ring for Ryzen, but this versus like, it, it was essentially five Bellator fighters versus five Ryzen fighters. And Bellator swept them. They went five and oh, uh, against like champions too. This wasn't like just no name Ryzen. Ryzen is of course for your listeners. That's like the big promotion in Japan. It's them in one championship of the two big Asian promotions and Ryzen doesn't do nearly as many. Uh, fights, but they do, they do it right. They do the big spectacle. So obviously I think the MVP was AJ McKee and Patricio Pitbull. Those guys are rivals. They beat the two champions of Ryzen. So I'm, I thought it was a lot of fun. There were no, there were no finishes. That would be my only complaint. And it's always fun because in, in Ryzen, there are some rules that we don't get to the UC in the US, specifically the UFC. Like the, Ryzen allows soccer kicks and stomps to the head. The UFC and Bellator and, like, the Western MMA leagues don't allow that. So to see A.J. McKee throw a foot stomp was like watching Pedro Martinez take a bat, like, go to bat in an all-star game. It's just you don't get to see that often. So that was very, that was kind of a treat. We're talking with Jose Young from MMA Fighting. So as we look ahead to 2023, the first big UFC pay-per-view is in Brazil, UFC 283. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glover Teixeira against Jamal Hill fighting for the vacant light heavyweight title. Uh, what what are you looking for in that fight? I'm looking forward to finally getting a light heavyweight champion again. Obviously, Europe Prohaska was the champion, as I said, when he beat Glover Teixeira, but then he very severely injured his shoulder and has to have like major reconstructive surgery, so he's going to be out for a long time. Obviously, UFC 282, we were supposed to get a new champion between Jan Blachowicz and Magomed Enkolaev. That fight ended up in the draw. And Dana Way was so disgusted by that fight that they made Globe share Jamal Hill backstage in Las Vegas. Uh, unfortunate for Anthony Smith, who was supposed to fight Jamal Hill. Uh, unfortunately, he already lost to Globe share, so Jamal Hill got to step up. So, uh, those guys, very rarely do you see their opponents leaving, uh, conscious. So I would say the Globe, I'm looking forward to just that. Even if there was no title on the line, that fight is fantastic, but I'm looking forward to finally uh, getting the light heavyweight division moving after all the turmoil at the top these last few weeks. What The fight I'm looking forward to on that one, even though they've fought like 75 times already, is <laughs> Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno for the flyweight title. I, I, find, I find the two of them fascinating, and getting to see them fight for the fourth time, I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens there. Yeah, this is the first, for people who don't know, this is the first quadrology, I think is what it's called. It's the first fourth fight between people in UFC history. Uh, the first fight was obviously a draw. Moreno won the second, the rematch. Figueredo won the third fight. And then Figueredo didn't even want to fight Moreno for the fourth time. Uh, and he took some time off. Moreno ended up beating Kai Car France for the interim title. So now they have to do it. Uh, so these are two, these two are very clearly the two best flyweights in the UFC. I'll still put Demetrius Johnson as the best flyweight in the world, even though he fights at 135. He's still technically a flyweight based off of one championship rules. Uh, but in the UFC, these are, these are the two best right now. Obviously, uh, the unfortunate part of this, of this whole story is there are other fighters like Alexandria Pantoja, Mateus Nicolau, who have done more than enough 
to get the title shot, but they have to wait. So the winner of this should fight Pantoja. I would assume Mateus Nicolau could fight someone like Amir Albazi or Brandon Royvel or something like that, but I'm excited to see history. These two have literally never had a bad fight. The first fight was one of my fight of the years. The second fight is one of the most exciting finishes ever. And the third fight, uh, which just happened in January, came in second on our list for best fights of the year on MMAfighting.com. So it's safe to say uh, these next five rounds between these gentlemen are going to be just as exciting. I would absolutely agree with that. What other fights are there on that card are you looking forward to? I mean, Gilbert Burns is one of these guys that's also never in a boring fight. I really want him to fight Jorge Masvidal, but he didn't get that sorted. Instead, he's fighting Neil Magny, who has Seems to have, he's a guy that is down to fight anyone, anytime, anywhere, uh, regardless of whether they're ranked or not, or coming off a loss. That this man just likes to fight, gets his paycheck, does business and leaves to the point where he has, like, just off the top of my head, uh, I remember in 2014, he had five wins in one calendar year, which is the record. He's tied with Roger Huerta in Kevin Holland. I believe he has the most decision wins in the history of the UFC. He's tied with the most unanimous decision wins in the UFC. He has the longest fight time total in welterweight history, and I know he has the most wins in UFC welterweight history. He just passed the great George St. Pierre, who I think is the greatest fighter of all time. So I'm very much looking forward to that fight. And then, of course, like there's a lot of fights with like title implications, like Jessica Andrade and Lauren Murphy is very important for the women's flyweight division. Uh, Paul Craig, Johnny Walker, uh, in this very shallow light heavyweight division will kind of hold their place in that top seven, uh, it's the, it's Shogun Hua's retirement fight. And Shogun Hua is, in every definition of the word, a legend. Like, he is a future first ballot Hall of Famer. He's one of these – he's like your favorite fighter's favorite fighter. There's a lot of fighters in the UFC now that are fighting MMA because they watch Shogun. It's, it's like if you're a pitcher and all of a sudden you're on the same team as Greg Maddox. Like, this is – his last fight is a – is like – a subtext of this card, and I think more people need to talk about it. He fought in pride. He's been the UFC champion. He'll fight anyone, anytime, anywhere, and he's just, he's every definition of the word a legend. On the flip side, down further on the card, Terrence McKinney is one of the most exciting prospects in the lightweight division. So I really do think this card, top to bottom, has stuff for everyone. They have big title fights, legends retiring, the, the, not the debut, but kind of the, the, the big showcase fight for these prospects. It's an inch, it's not the best card, but every fight has some sort of story. And are there any fights you know, that are coming up like in, in the coming months that have already been announced that you're very, that like you see that on the card and you're like, okay, I can't wait for, th- for these two to go at it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I was really excited to watch Shafkrak Rachmana versus Jeff Neal, which is on January 14th, I believe. Jeff Neal had to pull out, so whoever fights Shavkat Rachmanov, Shavkat is essentially, I think at, at the end of the day in a few years, it's going to be him and Hamzat fighting each other for the welterweight champion, so I'm, championship, so I'm very much looking forward to that one. Obviously, you got the champ versus champ fight between Alex Volkanovsky and Islam Mahachev, uh, UFC 284 in Perth, Australia. I'll be there for that one. Uh, if, if Alexander Volkanovsky wins, he... He becomes the the same thing that Connor did, the same thing Daniel Cormier did, the same thing Amanda Nunes did. You you become the champion of both the featherweight and lightweight of the world. He's currently the number one fighter pound for pound. Islam Mahachev, obviously Habib Nurmagomedov's protege, just submitted Charles Oliveira. He hasn't lost in like four in 
so long. He is essentially a perfect fighter. These are he's the number two pound for pound fighter in the world. So this is the number one fighter versus the number two fighter for the lightweight championship of the world. Whoever wins becomes the UFC's new pound for pound number one. This just checks all the boxes for a high level fight. And then if you're looking for a non title fight to be excited for, it really doesn't get better than Marlon Vera versus Corey Sanhagen at Bantamweight. I believe that's February 18th in at the UFC Apex. I'm very annoyed this is at the Apex and not inside a giant sold-out arena. But that is going to just be absolute beautiful violence. Those are two of the best martial artists on planet Earth, and I cannot wait for that fight. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Sanhagen myself, and even though I will – when he when Aljo was going for the bantamweight title, and he, that was like the number one contender fight. I wanted to see Aljo win as a as a local guy, but Sanhagen is he's one of my favorites to watch outside of that. So he is so good. He is such an interesting human being. Cheeto is such an interesting it's interesting guy too. And like I said, I, the only knock on this fight is it's not in a sold out arena. This they deserve fifteen thousand people watching this fight. I won't disagree with that. Uh, now for a couple of names that I'm sure a lot of people are sick of hearing because of they did something stupid or they just don't they don't stop talking and they don't actually back anything up to it. Will we see Conor McGregor or John Jones fight in 2023? John Jones for sure. John Jones is ready to go right now. He just needs an opponent. Uh, Francis Ngannou obviously is the heavyweight champion of the world, uh, but he had very severe like knee surgery, so he's like just getting back into the gym now. So. John Jones is obviously moving up to heavyweight right now. So if 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 Francis is healthy and he sorts this contract situa- situation out with the UFC, Francis Gano versus John Jones will be one of the biggest fights in the history of the UFC. John's ready now. If he's not, if if Francis isn't ready to go, the Cyril Gons or the Curtis Blades of the world will also be very very interesting, uh, or even like the Sergey Spivaks of the world, I'm not, or um, Sergey. I can't remember his name off of Pavlovich, who just knocked out Tai Tuivasa. Those would be the best ones. Fights for him. Connor, I would say there's like a 66% chance, so two-thirds chance. He just got back to the USADA pool. He also had that major leg break a couple years ago, so he's, he's he has to heal up, get back into fight shape, lose all this weight because he's like 190 pounds at the moment to get back to 155 or 170. Uh, it's just a matter of who he fights, I think, and when he can stay healthy. If he does fight, wouldn't be surprised if it's toward quarter four, the fourth quarter of 2023. But John Jones, I can confidently say we'll see him fight 2023. And is there – so obviously, yes, him fighting Francis would be would be big. But since he hasn't fought in now almost three years and is moving up in division, do you see anything where they do like maybe like a tune-up fight against like a lower-level heavyweight no before going? No way. They don't want – I think, I, I think John is – I think George St. Pierre is the greatest fighter of all time. I think John Jones is the most talented fighter I've ever seen. He's essentially the LeBron James of mixed martial arts. He's ring rust. I don't, I don't subscribe to the notion that ring rust is a myth because it definitely affects some people, but some people it doesn't. John Jones has taken a lot of time off for reasons of him being an idiot. Um, I don't think it will affect John nearly as much as people say. I think John, not only will he fight Francis first, I think he'll be very competitive, and I would probably pick him to beat Francis Ngannou. I honestly do. We're talking with Jose Young from MMAfighting.com. All right, I, I want to I see if you have a, a hot take on this one. 
Is there anyone that you like? We talked about 2022 kind of being a chalk year in terms of prospects, and nobody really, you know, coming out of nowhere to to really hit the scene. Is there anyone, anyone this year that you could see maybe making a dark horse title run? And that this can, this can be in any promotion, like anybody you see making a, like a dark horse title run and ending 2023 of the championship. Where people are saying, where did he come from, or she? Hmm. That's a very good question. That is a very good question. I think people, I'm not saying they're going to win the championship, but I could see fighters like Michelle Pajeda challenging for a title. I could see Charles Oliveira getting back in there. Um, Drew Dover, I think, could make a lot of noise because he's never been in a boring fight. Uh, he's incredibly talented. His chin can take an absurd amount of punishment. <laughs> Um, Bilal Muhammad, obviously, I think he's not bursting onto the scene in the sense like he's, he's not lost in a long time. Like, yes, he tech, like his fight against Leon Edwards was a no contest because he got poked in the eye like 20 seconds in, but he just, his problem is he just keeps winning and there's just fighters like Mazidal, Kobe Kanek, and Hamzat that are just more resonating with the fans. Same as Benil Darius, like those, like, if you're looking at just like ranking-wise, meritocracy-wise, Benil Darius and Dola Muhammad should be fighting for the lightweight and welterweight championship of the world next. They're just not the most popular. If they win the next fight, she can't argue. So I feel like they might burst onto the scene in terms of mainstream popularity, if that makes sense. But it's a good question, like, if a veteran will hang around and just win. For a while, I thought it would be Bobby Green, but Bobby Green just lost. So I truly don't know if there's any any fighter out there that might just kind of explode onto the scene after, like, years of not winning. There's no RDAs or Charles Oliveras or Globe Shares that have been in the UFC for six, seven years, and all of a sudden they win the title now. I can't think of anyone. And are there – do you see, like, anybody, like, who has, like, a has a contract come up that, like, might make the jump from Bellator to UFC or maybe the other way around? That Probably group? Kayla Harrison's the big one, I think, or Chris Cyborg when their contracts run out. I don't know if the UFC will want to do business with Chris Cyborg again. But I would say the big one is Kayla Harrison. If she, when her contract with the PFL runs out in 2024, she could definitely hop over, and that would be a match. Yes, she lost to Pacheco in her last fight, but she's obviously going to be one of the bigger free agents to come out. So, uh, if UFC signs her and they match her up with Amanda Nunes, that would be one of the bigger female fights they can make. And got what? Just one more before we uh, before we let you go and go to break. Uh, so, one of the things that you have been doing, and it's been. Uh, it's been out on YouTube. Uh, you have a podcast through MMA Fighting, yeah, the anything, the anything but fighting podcast, where you bring you bring on fighters or commentators, and you, as the title says, talk about anything but. Where 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 did the idea come from? That I just really like talking. Like I've been talking to fighters for so long, and most of our conversations are about stuff that's not about fighting. So I just turned it into a podcast. Like me and uh, New York's own Matt Frivola had kicked around the idea of like he's unfortunately he's a very big Mets fan <laughs> so we might do a podcast on his love in the Mets uh, I know I just did one on Boston Sports with John Anik uh, there's a few other like Megan Olivia said she wanted to do one about some of her hobbies uh, Roxanne Modafari wants to do some stuff Andre Feely we've, we've kicked around some ideas and just I enjoy talking to fighters about not fighting like what? What's the what's who's the person that you want to talk to the most about his or her outside interest? Mm, let's see. 
Andre Feely obviously has a very substantial comic book collection. Patty Pimblett is oddly enough a very big movie fan, but like likes very good movies. Uh, Kevin Holland collects classic cars, and I would love to talk to Maurice Green, who is no longer in the UFC, but he's a very tall heavyweight, and he loves knitting. And I think that would be very fascinating to talk to him about. I would, I would agree, and I would, I, <laughs> not that I know anything about knitting, but I would be interested just to just to see that, see the dynamic on that. Well, Jose, thank you so much for taking the time today, and a happy new year. Appreciate you, man. Happy new year. Go Pat, go, John W. Henry. Please resign to Rafael Devers. <laughs> All right, that was Jose Young from MMA Fighting with, with a plea to sign Rafael Devers. I hope he. I hope he stays with the Red Sox, too, even as a Yankees fan, because I just like watching him play, and if he's not going to sign with the Yankees, I'd rather see him where the Yankees play him 18 times a year. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have Rich List, the Executive Vice President of the New York Riptide. We'll be right back. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. And we're back to WGBB Sports Talk New York here in Merrick, Long Island. I'm Andy Sukoff, and joining me now for the next half hour, uh, we have Rich Lisk, the Executive Vice President of the New York Riptide of the National Lacrosse League. Rich, how are you tonight? Andy, how you doing, brother? Happy New Year. To you and your family as well. How's everything? Everything's going great. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Uh, we'll, we'll jump right into it. Uh, a few weeks into the season. Uh, how, how's the team gelling so far? You know what, Andy? It's been a little, it's been a little crazy. Yeah, we've had, it, it, I, I don't know. It should have maybe been an omen to start off with our first training camp back in November. Uh, beautiful day. Um, we're getting all the guys to fly in, and a fog storm hits Toronto and New York, and we have to cancel the first week of training camp. So I was like, oh, all right, I don't know if that's an omen. Um, and they had us, uh, you know, we, we went through training camp all through November, which went great, and then we, uh, you know, we're gelling. We got a new team. They're still young, getting together here, and uh, we had a great draft in Toronto, so we're getting everyone together. So we had to cut camp short by a week. And then the, you know, the schedule gods put us in against San Diego, which arguably everyone is saying is the best team in the league. We played them on opening night. We, um, I think we played them very well. We lost 15 to 14 with two seconds left in the game. Um, the goalie hit the, hit the net off. Our guy shot it, hit the crossbar. The net came down on the goalie's stomach, but he was laying on the line and they couldn't tell if the ball went over the line or not. And, uh, and we, and we, we don't tie them and we lose. 15-14, so guys were like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll regroup for the next game. Then next game we play Halifax. They're the 
arguably one of the best teams in the league, if not the second best team in the league. And, and we, we, we lost very bad on that game, 20 to 11. Um, so that was a little bit of a setback, but you know, now we've had three weeks off here with the holidays and bye weeks and we've had a couple of practices. So we're regrouping and getting ready for the game, uh, you know, the game on the 7th here at Nassau Coliseum. So in a situation like that where, you know, it, the holidays do kind of throw wrenches into that, when you're starting to get into a groove, having that kind of extended time off so early in the season, does that, does that throw off the the flow or, or do you find that to be welcoming? I, I personally find that it throws off the flow a little bit because um, we're all jacked up for the regular, the beginning of the season, right? We've come out of training camp. We've played two games. We're ready to go. I, most of the time, I'm like, ah, I really don't like these bye weeks early. I'm a big holiday guy, so I'm okay with the holidays often things. But this year, I will look at it a little differently because, you know, in our first two games, we had, we were without Callum Crawford, um, our, our second leading scorer on the team. He pulled his calf muscle in the halfway through the first game, and we were that without three of our defensemen that were injured. So these three weeks off have actually helped us in a way. I don't like the fact that it, it's broken our momentum a little bit, but it's given us another three weeks to get these guys healed up, which is good. So coming back on the 7th, we'll have everybody back except our captain, Dan McRae, who's who's questionable for the 7th, but he should be ready for our next game on the 15th if he doesn't go on the 7th. So, yes, that has helped us get healthier. Um, and then also coaches did a, a couple of extended practices and, uh, and we're actually introducing our, uh, this year something new for our team too. We have a mental performance coach, which has been working with the guys here in the off season. So there's a couple of sessions that we did. So we've tried to take our time here these three weeks and really make it as productive as possible. Um, as everyone knows, most of the guys and 85% of our guys fly in from Canada. So, you know, we're not together all the time like the Islanders and, and things. So we don't have scheduled workouts where everyone can physically see each other. So we've done a, um, we've done an online scheduled workouts and things. So just trying to keep the guys focused during the holidays is a little tough, but for us to get healthy, I think it, it's helping us this year. We're talking with Rich List from the New York Riptide. So in the absence of players who were, like you said, leading a score, I, as I was looking through the stats, you got some other guys who were putting up some nice point per game numbers. Guys like Jeff Teat with his six goals, twelve assists, and putting up nine nine total points a game. That's that's nothing to shake a stick at. <laughs> no, I, I tell you, I always joke around with everybody. I say, you know, our first year in the league, we went one and twelve, and there's not many good things that come out of one and twelve, except you get the number one pick in the draft, and you get to choose a generational player like Jeff Teat who, for those people who don't know who Jeff Teed is, Jeff's a, a Canadian-born player. He played at Cornell for four years. They throw around generational talent to certain people in the sports world. He is a generational talent. He uh, he played with us last year in his rookie year. He was the first rookie in the 36-year history of the league to eclipse 100 points and win rookie of the year. Then in the outdoor game, he played in the outdoor game in the PLL, and he won rookie of the year there. He was on the all-rookie team here. He was third in the league in scoring. It's like having, you know, Kobe Bryant, Connor McDavid on your team. And uh, he is a special talent. Um, he can't do it all himself. That's the other thing I think uh, some people, uh, some people, you know, the teams are gearing on him now, right? His second year, it's a sophomore year. You know, people are gearing on him. But he's a very special guy and a special kid because He's a mature guy, and as you said, he's putting up close to you know nine points a game. 
and that's because of his maturity and how he, he, uh, he thinks this game. His high IQ of lacrosse is off the charts. And when you think he, you got him pinned into a corner and you, you get, you can't get him out of that corner, he finds a way to get the ball out, get it to someone else even to score. And then, you know, this offseason we added Riley O'Connor on the left side. I think we needed a little more grit over there, a little more leadership. Riley was with me for five years in New England, was able to finally make a trade to get him here. And, uh, and it's good chemistry off the field for the two of them, too, because they're best friends, Jeff and Riley. They work together. Um, they travel together. So that chemistry that you're creating off the field, you're seeing now on the field where Riley's having one of his best starts of his career now, too, which, is, which has been great. Off season two, we added Kevin Burnell, who was the assistant captain of the Buffalo Bandits, who went to the finals last year. Um, he's really helped shore up our D on the back end. We added a young transition player, Jordy Jones-Smith, back there also. So, um, yeah, there were some pieces that we put together. We were happy with us that the season ended last year. We were one game out of making the playoffs. There's 22 weeks in a season. The 20th week, we were still in the playoff hunt, and we were one game out after going 1-12 and the year before. Um, I think if the season would have been extended a, a couple more weeks, we probably would have made the playoffs or would have made some noise if we got in. So giving these guys another year to gel and then adding some pieces, I try to explain to everybody, and I'm a, I'm a runner by nature. I, I, I run half marathons and things, and, and um, I try to tell our team that this game we play in life is, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So we might be 0-2 right now, but there's a lot of season left, and I like I like the makeup of our team. And as as you were describing, Jeff Teed, I was listening to all that, and I, I come from a hockey background, and all I, all I heard of that was Nathan McKinnon. Like, like, yeah. like very similar. Yeah. Very similar exactly it. He is Nathan McKinnon. I come from a hockey background, too. I was the GM of an ECHL team for seven years and six years. And, and I get, yeah, he's Nathan McKinnon. He is, he thinks a game. He sees a game. He sees things in a game that we don't even see until you look at film. And you're like, oh, wait, that's what Jeff saw. <laughs> we didn't see it in real time. We have to have film slow it down so we can see it. And those are talent. those are absolutely the players you like. You love to build around, and and like you said, that you know, going one and twelve sucks, but getting number yeah. one pick and getting that guy is is a nice little benefit. Oh yeah, and you know every team every every team in the league asks us, oh, would you ever trade Jeff? Would you want to trade Jeff? You know, what do you think about trading Jeff? And my 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 standard answer is is that there's only one guy I would probably trade Jeff for, and he walked on water many many years ago, and no team has that guy. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. He'll be here for many years to come. We're talking about Rich Lisk. Uh, I was looking at the schedule. You got what 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 what's cool about lacrosse, and uh, as, as I was looking through, it's like. You guys do a you guys do a lot of really good promotion, you know, good like with fan engagement. So you got a lot of good ones coming up uh, next week, uh, youth lacrosse night, uh, the week after nineties night. Which I do have to ask, who's going to be the live performer there? <laughs> I'm trying. It's a secret. We're working on it. We're working on it. I'm a nineties kid too, so I'd love to get Rick Astley here. We're working on a lot of different things. <laughs> I. I, I like I, I'd be I'd be very down if you if you find a way to, you know maybe pull off like a like a Matchbox Twenty or something like that and you know like like really like really go like like late nineties night. Little Gin Blossoms do a little of that wouldn't be bad, right? A little yeah. who I saw Hootie and the Blowfish got back together. I wouldn't mind having Hootie and the Blowfish come and play. Yeah, I, you, you you do that, I'll be there. I mean, I might be there anyway. <laughs> All right, I'm working on it. Uh, and then on the twenty eighth, you have the Hometown Heroes Night. 
which I, that's, that's, that's a always, big night for us. Like yeah, I, that's I, a big night for us, and we're excited. And since I came involved with the team in their first year, I got here later in the first year. Hometown Heroes was one of the last games we did before we were shut down through the pandemic. And then last year we did Hometown Heroes where we wore special jerseys that looked like hospital scrubs with Superman capes on the back, and we auctioned them all for charity. And it, it, that's a really special game, and that one really, really – um, we get behind, not that we don't get behind all of our games, but there's some on your calendar that you look at that are really special. And this is one that we all really get excited about. We're working out a program right now with the, uh, the fire museum there on Museum Row in Nassau that we're going to do something with one of our players who's a fireman, Damon Edwards, um, where he's going to get out into the community and, and talk to some of the kids. You know, we, we honor a lot of, uh, first responders, EMT, nurses, doctors. We're going to be wearing specialty jerseys that night also. Um, we're going to unveil our third jersey that night, which is really an, an homage to our seafoam color and things. So we're really excited about that. So that, that, one, that game always hits home for me because it's fun. There's an atmosphere in the building. Everyone gets jacked up for it. Um, we do a lot of stuff on the scoreboard with honoring these heroes and, and things, and, and I'm excited about that game. And there's some other things we got coming. Actually, it's funny, out of that game our first year, we honored this person named Brian Stipp. Brian ended up, he owns the West Hampton Beach Brewing Company, and we wound up doing our own beer with Brian last year and giving the proceeds to the Boomer Esiason Foundation. We raised over $8,000 for Boomer between the two organizations. And this year we're taking it to another level. In March 18th, Brian at West Hampton Beach Brewing Company the Riptide and Boomer are putting on a game, and again, proceeds go to Boomer's foundation. But that night, we're unveiling a new jersey also that's going to be themed with West Hampton Beach Brewing Company and the Boomer Esiason Foundation. And then we're going to auction those jerseys off, game worn jerseys, and give all the proceeds to Boomer's foundation. So that all came from our first hometown heroes game. So that game tends to be one in, in, that I like to check off the box as a, as a special one. And then we finish up our season March the 25th with Orland and Cohen, where we do a health and wellness night. We have a health and wellness fair and we're uh, and Orland and Cohen is a big, big partner of ours and, and a really, you know, a really great community partner that we work very tightly with. So they do that last game. And then, you know, some of the other things we're doing too is that we, you know, the NFL Coliseum has an expo hall. So we're starting to program the Expo Hall. We ran a uh, pickleball tournament last uh, last home game. We had over uh, 98 teams come out, 300 players, and they played pickleball all afternoon and came watched us play at night. We got another uh, dance competition, a, a cheerleading dance competition we're going to be doing. And uh, as you mentioned, we have youth lacrosse night coming up, and then later on we're going to be running a big King of the Coliseum tournament. So there's a lot of things that go on at our game. That just isn't lacrosse. There's a lot of entertainment value and a lot of things we're trying to bring to the, uh, to the community also and not just be, uh, the riptide. We're trying to bring a lot of different things. And I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you played in that pickleball tournament, but wow, what a workout that is. I have not yet. I, I tend to be a runner and I, I've gotten into my running thing, but my wife and I have talked about trying pickleball. That's our next, uh, that's I mean, our next big I, one. I, 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 from experience, you do a lot of running. Well, that's good. That's good because I could use it at times, especially after these holidays. It's been a, it's been yeah. a lot of, uh, eating and, uh, and partaking in adult beverages. Um, yeah, you, in these holidays, I got to get this weight off somehow. So yeah, pickleball is next on the market. Yeah, you, you, you do a lot of short bursts and cuts. Like you, you might, you might be able to trial for wide receiver after, after you're done. 
Oh, uh, maybe someday. <laughs> I don't know. Time might have passed me on for that one, but I'm looking forward to it. So we're talking with Rich List from the Riptide. Uh, you know, front offices always talk about, you know, your three-year plans, your five-year plans, your ten-year plans. Uh, you're, you're now at year three with the Riptide. And, you know, when you, when you, when you came in, you would, you, you, I'm sure you would put out, you know, a list of goals and expectations that you wanted to get at certain benchmarks. What, now that you're at year three, what, like, what are the expectations for this season? Yeah, our expectations this season is to make the playoffs. And, um, that's probably a year ahead of where I thought we would be when I originally gave our five year plan to our ownership group. I had us going to the playoffs in year four and five and playing for a championship in year five. Um, but after last year and what we've done with our young core D and our goalie and, and with Stephen Orlemont and some of our young D and then bringing in Jeff and Callum Crawford and adding to some pieces, um, those expectations rose at the end of the year. And uh, in the off season, the coaches and, and myself sat down with Jim Beltman, our, our GM, and we said, you know, what are our expectations? And I usually go around the room and, and say, guys, based on what you saw last year, what do you expect us to be this year? And we did a mock thing where we all kind of tell us how many games we think we're going to win and lose. And when you add it up, um, everybody's thing. We were pretty close. We were probably off by one game each, two games each. But when we all looked at it, the numbers we came up with painted a picture that we could be in the playoffs based on the past history. So we said our goal this year was to uh, to make those playoffs. And then when you get in those playoffs, anything can happen. But for a team like us, going from one and twelve to six and twelve to then going into the playoffs, that's a huge accomplishment. And I think we can really build off of that. So. You know, going into this season, playoffs are an expectation for us. And so, with with that, and like success comes fans. Like what what are some of the campaigns you're you're doing to attract new fans to who may who may not either may not know that professional lacrosse is being played right in their backyard, or that are looking for that off season that off season activity to do, and they say, oh, you yeah. know, like like that like that's cool. We should go do that. Yeah, you know, like we're introducing things like pickleball tournaments, you know, people that probably wouldn't have known what we were or, or what we do, and we're introducing that. So there's 300 people that, you know, out of that, probably two-thirds of them don't know who the Riptide are, and now they come and they watch a game. Um, we're doing a lot with uh, FLG. FLG is a group called, for, for, uh, you know, out in, in Long Island that's running our 10-week box lacrosse program that we fly in our players every week to run for them. Which is, which has been tremendous for us. We're reaching out and doing things with Harlem lacrosse. We just struck a deal with Warrior, um, Warriors, Jeff Teeth sponsor. So we're doing a thing called Teeth Warriors where Jeff's inviting 25 kids down and, um, kids that have either, you know, don't have the means to play lacrosse or, or want to get into lacrosse and Jeff hosts them at a game and Warrior gives them a prize pack and we're getting them introduced to the game of lacrosse. But then off of that, Jeff, well, at least once a month, we're trying to do it every single home game that Jeff goes to a lacrosse unlimited store on Long Island. And, and it's not just an autograph session where he sits there and signs autographs with the kids. We created a stringing lounge where kids can come sit down in a relaxed atmosphere, talk to Jeff and string sticks. And he's teaching them, he's teaching them those things. And when you get on that one-on-one level with a, with a kid and you're talking to him and you're not just walking through a line and signing someone's shirt or a picture, but you can actually sit down for 10, 15, 20 minutes with Jeff and ask him questions and understand what makes him tick and how he got to where he was. Those are the impactful things 
we just did a deal with um, the Suffolk County Board of Education, where are actually our, uh, our our cheerleaders are 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 doing a program in schools where we're teaching kids not to vape and how the the, the, the you know the, how bad vaping is, and they're going to be teaching a program with our mascot Eddie, so we can get on on that level also. We're tying in with places like the, the Firemen's Museum and the Aviation Museum. Those things have been great. And then we're doing more of a grassroots type thing, too. So this year we were out at a lot of tree lightings, and we were helping helping communities light the trees and giving out riptide ornaments. We uh, put up uh, those mayor political signs that you'll see around town. You know, we got 500 of them, and our season ticket holders helped us put those out. So you'll start seeing those around town and things. So getting more on that level I think is good because I want us to be in the community. I don't want us to be, you know, just fly in, play a game, and fly out. Our guys are all over the community. We just put out a great video with Rico's Pizza. They're a big sponsor of ours, and uh, we do our recap show from there. So our, we have a new director of digital content, Tyson Dyke, and Tyson is going around, you know, to our sponsors doing these recap videos where we're actually sitting down with the fans and, and our sponsors and going through the things that we're doing, you know, things like, Orlin and Cohen's health and wellness night. Like we're going to be working with them to get into the communities to bring people to our games to have different vendor spaces and do yoga classes and, and do athletic training and things like that. So, so people can understand that. Yeah, we're a lacrosse team that plays on Long Island out of the Nassau Coliseum, but we're also a community partner. And that's what I want to get across the community partnership. Those are all incredible things. To, to go, to go back to the mascot for a second, when I went to the game last year, it took me about till halftime to finally get Eddie. I was like, oh right, that's, that's a thing with a riptide. It, it took, it took, it took me, like I said, it took me to like, to like halftime to get it. And I was yeah. like, I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. A little pool of water, Eddie. Uh, and he's been great. And we, we, uh, we stepped that up a little bit this year. You're going to start seeing him have more social media presence. And, and doing more appearances and things. These are all the evolution of the team because people have to realize and make no excuses, but it is what it is. Like we got here, we only had five or six home games the first year, and then we were shut down for 18 months. And then we came back for a second season with limited capacity and COVID restrictions, so it really didn't allow us to do a lot of things. This is really the kickoff. I, I, like, I don't want to say kickoff, but this is like the second rebirth of the team and now with no restrictions, we can do a lot more things. So you'll start seeing different evolution of revol- evolutions of things that are happening. And now it's really starting to kick in. Well, if he, if he becomes the more, a more popular mascot than Gritty, that's a good thing. There's, there's echelons of people, right? So everyone says that. There's the Mount Rushmore's of things. And that is absolutely what we aspire Eddie to be. Yeah, that's gritty is the Mount Rushmore, right? It's gritty. It's the fanatic. It's the, you know, the Phoenix Gorillas, the San Diego Chicken. If I could get Eddie to that point one day, then I think we've done a pretty good job. I would, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, we're talking about Rich Lisk from the New York Riptide. Uh, what are some of your most, in, for you, what are your some of your most anticipated matchups coming up as the season kicks back into gear? I, you know, I, I like this next game we're coming in because you know again. We came in against San Diego. They're arguably been predicted to win the whole thing. They had a great free agency in the offseason. They signed two big names in Kevin Crowley and, and, and Curtis Dixon. So everyone was, you know, this is the team to beat. We played them the 15-14. Then we had the letdown of the Halifax, which, you know, I was disappointed at that game. I thought we could have played better, and we didn't. It was just one of those games throughout the year. You get them, 
we got it out of our system early. So this next game against Toronto on the 7th is an important game for us. And they, we play Toronto well. They're very, very good. I mean, in the, the league, everyone says it's, you know, it's always Buffalo, Toronto, now San Diego, and Halifax. Those are the, those are the, probably the four big teams. And we played, we're going to play three, we're going to play all four of them by the end of the month. So we're going to the test. And you know what? I say pressure is a privilege. And if you want to, you know, I came from the World Wrestling Federation. So uh, at one point, and I, I used to do some work with Ric Flair, his motto is, if you want to be the man, you got to beat the man. So I'm okay going against these four men, these four men teams coming up here. And let's see how we stack up against them. So I'm excited about this month of January because we have some really good matchups. And we play these teams well. Last year we beat Toronto at home. You know, last year against Buffalo, we lost to them 17-16 in overtime, and then we beat them 15-9 to up in Buffalo. So we, we tend to play well and rise to the occasion. I like our makeup better this year, so I'm hoping, very, very hopeful that uh, these games will, will play out the way we think they'll play out. So this month is a really important month for us, but an exciting month for us. And, again, people are like, you guys have one of the toughest schedules in the league, and, and I accept that. Like I said, pressure is a privilege, and I'd rather have the pressure to not have it. I That makes total sense. And, you know, sometimes the schedule, sometimes the schedule makers have a really – Twisted sense of humor, and they're like, "Yeah, we'll 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 stack we'll stack we'll stack the deck here, and then, yeah. and and then when that team goes two and two or three and one, it's like, like wow, no, like, didn't see that coming." Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly it. You know, these next fourteen weeks are tough. We don't have off for the next fourteen weeks, and this month coming up, we have three games this month at home. We got another game in February at home. So, you know, you like to win your home games. You want to win as many home games as possible. So this is a good test for us coming up here, and, and I'm excited. The North and the East are, are pretty good team, pretty good you know, divisions right now, and we're in the thick of that. And if we want to see who we are, if we want to see how we're progressing, I want to play the best. And um, these are the best teams, so I'm looking forward to it. And now that you've had like a se- like a season and a half where the restrictions on capacity have started to ease and now they're completely gone, as you've seen for for home games, what are, what are, who are the teams that when they come in, fans are really charged up for like like this is the game to be at, like this is like this is our rival. These are these are the teams that we start that fans are circling on the calendars like we're we're going to this game. Yeah, you know what? I'd say Philadelphia is is big with that because they travel so well. So when Philly comes here, they usually bring 40, 50, 60 people with them, and uh, and they always sit right behind our bench um, for to, to give us that Philly. They want to turn our uh, New York into the Philly home game for them, and they're boisterous and they're loud and they're passionate, and I appreciate that from a fan. So that one gets me jacked up, and I think the fans get jacked up with that one. You know, Buffalo last two years have been in the finals, and we've played them very, very well both these last two years. I think everyone gets up for Buffalo. You know, Albany is another big game for us because they used to be the New England Black Wolves, so they were right across the sounds from us. So that's a big game. A lot of guys, uh, a lot of guys are uh, know a lot of players on those teams, and then Toronto. You know, Toronto is that team that's uh, you know one of the perennial favorites every year. Toronto and Buffalo and Philadelphia have been around the longest in this league. So I think those are like the original teams that people really like to get up and, and, and see. And we've developed three, uh, rivalries with them. But I'd say right now our rivalries, 
you know, really intensify with Philly, Albany, Buffalo, and Toronto. New York and Philly, that a rivalry that'll never die. Never, never die. And I've been on both of those sides. I was with Philly my first two years in the league. We didn't have a team in New York. Now I'm with New York, and I love that rivalry. I'm a huge Yankee fan. I grew up in New Jersey. I'm a big New York fan. So, um, yeah, it's extra special when you play Philly. You like to you like to make sure that they leave um, not as happy as when they try to come into your building. That is a fact. And I just got one last one before we before we let you go. Uh, when, when, when I when I saw you guys last year, uh, one of the besides the first thing I commented that. Apparently, offsides is not a thing in lacrosse. Uh, the, the the jerseys kind of reminded me of the '90s Islanders fishermen yeah. jerseys, and I, you could see you could see the inspiration behind it. Mm-hmm. And now that the Islanders have brought that back this season, do you guys mm-hmm. like? Do you guys like that, or like you kind of like you kind of? Yeah, I'm excited now. about. It. I think it's great. I mean, listen, that's their that's their logo. That's their jersey, right? You've gone through jerseys and you see the you know, the evolution of these jerseys as they go along. And that's their logo and that's their jersey. And, yeah, we pay homage to the old Islanders teams that play there, right? I'm not going to say we don't. We have the sea foam, we have orange, we got green, orange, and blue. And, and we, 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 we've played off of that. And Nassau Coliseum is our home, and we love it, and that's where we want to build those memories too. But there's some other things we're doing down the road, and – I would say on that March 18th game, when we have the Boomer in West Hampton Beach Brewing Company, we're going to unveil a jersey. And I personally think the logo that we came up with that's going to be on the front of that jersey on March the 18th is going to be a special jersey. And I think people are really, really going to like it. And, and maybe I'll eat my words here, but that one could push to become into our regular rotation. So I'm going to put it out there right now as a little preview, but keep an eye out for that March 18th game. If people like what we've done so far to the homage to Long Island, this one is a good one, and it's going to be even more special. Like, well, you've now piqued my interest, and Rich, <laughs> Rich, I want to th- I want to thank you so much for taking the time tonight, and enjoy the rest of your day. Happy New Year! Oh, Happy New Year, Andy, and thank you for all your support. And, and listen. Come out, come out again this year and maybe make that March 18th game. I think you'll like it. I will certainly see. Uh, that was Rich List from the New York Riptide. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Gerald Borgay joins us from Phoenix Sports. We'll be right back. For hour two of a special New Year's two-hour edition of WGBB Sports Talk New York here on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM, I'm Andy Sukov. I got a lot of thoughts brewing about the Jets, and coming up in a half an hour, you're going to hear all about them. But before that, joining me from Phoenix to talk about tomorrow's Suns-Knicks game from Phoenix Sports, Gerald Borgay. Gerald, thanks for taking the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Uh, we're going to jump right in. So... Tomorrow, Suns are in town playing the Knicks. Both teams kind of like in an up and down move right now. Suns sitting at seventh in the West, twenty and seventeen, lost five of the last six, which coincides with Devin Booker having been out. Uh, where, like, where do you see the team going while Booker is out for like another few weeks? Yeah, it's been tough for the Suns recently, and 
I'm sure Hoops fans can relate. They were on that eight-game win streak, and then they lost, I think, five straight. The Suns have been kind of alternating win and losing streaks all season long, but they've lost, I think, 11 of their last 16 games now uh, just because they've had to deal with so many injuries. And with Booker being out, it's pretty clear that the level of effort and execution for this group has to be extremely high on a night-to-night basis for them to compete. Um, they've been looking a little bit better recently. They played the Nuggets really tough on Christmas Day and lost in overtime. Um, they beat Memphis the other night, uh, despite all the guys that they've had out, but they've also had a couple of tough losses back-to-back now. So it, it's hard to know what to expect from the Suns on a night-to-night basis. They've been playing with a lot of effort, but right now they're just kind of lacking the uh, firepower and especially the defense that they've normally brought to the table. And looking at the standings, we're we're approaching the halfway point of the season, and you look at the Western Conference standings, it's very different than what we've seen in years past. You know, gone are the the Lakers and the Spurs at the top of the at the top of the conference. We're now seeing the Nuggets, the Pelicans, and even even the Sacramento Kings are in the top five right now, which that hasn't that hasn't happened I think since like two thousand two. So you're you're seeing a, a very big changing of the guard in the NBA, and the Suns are like right like right on that cusp. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they've been, like last year, I think there was a huge sense of disappointment here in the city that they weren't able to kind of make good on their status as the most dominant team in the NBA during the regular season, uh, you know, falling apart in that second-round playoff series. But you're right, you look at the standings, and it's very close throughout, you know. Only six games separate the 10 seed right now from first place in the conference, um, and the Suns are about as close to, falling out of a playing spot as they are to the number one seed. So there's a lot of parity in the league right now. Um, it's been a lot of fun to watch because all these teams have young stars, young talent that's thriving right now. You know, if you, if you were to talk about MVP standings, it changes on a day-to-day basis between like five or six guys. So um, it is really cool to see all of these other teams kind of rising to the top and getting some fresh blood near the top of the conference. Uh, what one of the couple players that are that have been out for the Suns that, that are going to be coming back probably tomorrow to play against the Knicks and Landry Schmidt campaign. So that's got I mean that's got to be a huge boost to the lineup and adding some adding some depth to the rotations. Where where are they going to fit in going back into the lineup? Are they going to go right back to their roles or kind of like slowly bring them bring them back to speed? Yeah, I, I think I mean both of them both. Shamit and Payne are listed as probable, um, so they're most likely play. And I think with Shamit, they're really going to be glad to have him back because he was kind of filling in the Devin Booker take a ton of shots at the two guard position role um, for the last couple of games. And he's been playing really well. He set his uh, career high with 31 against the Wizards for Christmas, and then he tied it uh, again on Christmas Day against the Nuggets. So. He's had 30-point games in two of his last three. He's looked really confident, and, of course, the Achilles thing comes out of nowhere right after that. Um, so it's been kind of difficult for him, and it's hard to see how how many minutes he'll play in his first game back. Um, but he's he's been great for them recently. And then with Payne, I think he might be a guy that they ease into a little bit just because, you know, Dwayne Washington Jr. has been playing really well, and Payne missed significant time with that foot strain. So I don't think we'll see his kind of normal allotment of minutes, but they definitely want to get him back on the floor and back in shape just because 
their second unit has been stretched really thin with all the starters and all the other players they've been missing. We're talking with Gerald Borgie from Phoenix Sports. Uh, two, of, two of the big stars on the Suns outside of Booker, McCall Bridges, DeAndre Aiden, have really, I, from what I've seen, step, really been stepping it up in the absence of Booker, Shamit, and Payne. Uh, now that, the, now that they're, now that they're starting to get healthy and getting some of these guys back, are, will you see those guys' roles change or are they gonna still be looked at to be, be the guy? Yeah, I mean, without Booker, it's been, like, you know, you look at the offensive standings and they're still third in offensive rating despite how many guys they've had in and out despite missing Booker for the last handful of games. Um, and that's a testament to kind of their three-point shooting, how balanced they've been uh, with their scoring. Um, and you mentioned D.A. and McHale. Like, they're they're both terrific third options. I'm not sure either one of them has really proven that they can be a second option to this point because with D.A., he's been really good over this last handful of games with Booker out. But then he'll have a game like the other night against the Raptors where he only scored like four points on two of ten shooting. And it's just finding that consistency that's been tough for these guys because they're not really used to being in that role. It's kind of been a trial by fire, and the Suns have intentionally kind of had Chris Paul ease up off the reins a little bit to see if either of these guys can kind of step up. And so far, you know, they're both turning in pretty great seasons if you just look at the numbers. But finding that consistency of being the second in charge on offense uh, has been kind of a struggle for both of them. So it's it's tough because one night one of them will go off and then the next night the other one will go off. Um, but it's kind of like they're alternating, honestly, at some points. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Mikhail is still one of the premier defenders in the league. He's dabbled a little bit more with offensive creation and playmaking. And then D.A. is still an elite play finisher, and he's had some high-scoring games with Booker out. So, um you can probably expect to see one of them go off tomorrow night and, and maybe the other one not so much. I, and th- this may have been me just overrating him a little bit after watching him in college, but I was, when he came out, I'm a, I'm a little, su- I was admittedly a little surprised DeAndre Aiden hasn't won like three MVPs yet. I, I really thought he was going to be like one of the greatest players ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was, he was very highly touted coming out of college, that's for sure, especially around these parts being uh, a U of A guy. Um, I, for one, was was more on the bandwagon of they should draft Luka Doncic, and, and that's kind of panning out. But D.A. is still a great player in his own right. He's going to be a consideration, at least, for all-star votes this year. Um, I don't know if he'll get an all-star spot, but he's been, he's been solid for them. It's just a matter of finding that night-in, night-out consistency that's been a struggle. And also on the injury front, you have Cam Johnson been out since November with the torn meniscus. Uh, has there been any updates on when he might be returning to the Suns lineup? Yeah, so he's still out for Monday's game. He has been doing a lot of drill work. Um, he hasn't played since November 4th, so we're coming up on two months. And typically with a meniscus uh, surgery like the one that he had, you're looking at around one to two months. Probably going to take a little bit longer because he has not been practicing fully with the team. He's been doing drill work, but no contact work, no five-on-five stuff. Um, so he's, he's getting his body in shape for sure, but it still might be a little ways away before we see Cam Johnson on the floor again. And now looking at tomorrow's matchup against the Knicks, 
as we said at the beginning, uh, Knicks, like the Suns, have been up and down. They've lost five straight before beating Houston, won eight in a row before that. How how do the Suns match up with the Knicks right now? Yeah, that's honestly a good question because you look at both teams, and like you said, they've been kind of all over the map recently. Um, I, I think the Knicks have played them pretty well in recent years. Um you know they're they're uh, they're a tricky team to peg just because of the way that they play and their unpredictability. I do think the Suns are kind of sliding right now at the moment, so this might be a tough one. They are currently on this extended road trip, um, and that's you know that factors into it. They've also had two nights in New York, two off nights, so um, you know don't be surprised if you might see a, a player hungover or two out there, <laughs> but. Uh, it should be a good game. I, I think the Suns have been stewing on their last loss for a couple of days now, so they're going to want to come out and try to get a win on this road trip since it's been mostly a struggle to this point. Yeah, I got, like when the, when the Knicks signed Jalen Brunson during the offseason, all, all the talk here in New York was like they, fi- they finally found the guy to, to lead them, and you know, he has, like you look at his numbers, he has put up a good season with, Averaging twenty points a game, averaging six and a half assists a game, and the Knicks are sitting at nineteen, eighteen. They're in a playoff spot, and like relatively, like they're sitting in the eighth spot. But they're only one. They're only one game out from being in the top six. Only, only five out from being a top three. So, like, I I look at a guy like that. And I'm I'm admittedly, I I don't watch the NBA like you do, but seeing a guy like that. I, I think of like baseball war. I have to imagine his war would be like off the charts. Especially for the Knicks. Yeah, team. I mean, the Knicks have been like, I, I think they were kind of getting off to a very typical Knicks start this season. And then they kind of put that win streak together where Jalen Brunson, RJ Barrett, and Julius Randle were just playing incredible basketball. Um, and Randle's a tough matchup for the Suns just because of the size and the strength that he brings to the table. Brunson is, is a quick, um, smaller, crafty guard, so he's another challenging defensive assignment for the Suns. Um, and, you know, looking at their numbers, the Knicks are third in the NBA in offensive rebounds per game, and they're first in the NBA in second chance points. And, you know, with so many guys out, that's kind of been an area for improvement for the Suns for sure. That's, you know, they've gotten a lot better at keeping opponents off the offensive glass than, like, last year. But when they do struggle with that, they have a really tough time beating teams. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on in this particular matchup. And as you look at the as you look at the matchup tomorrow, what, what are what are some of the factors that you see for the Suns that they need that they need to do to ensure victory at the Garden tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one is getting stops and getting defensive rebounds to close those stops out. It's something that again they've kind of struggled with at times this season. And their defense really hasn't been good. You know, they're borderline a top 10 defense for the season as a whole. But since the month of December, I think they ranked 27th in defensive rating. So that's really been a struggle for them. And it's hard to establish that kind of continuity on that end of the floor when you have so many guys in and out of the lineup like the Suns have. But they've really got to stop falling behind early. If you look at their last four or five games, you know, they've fallen behind 8-0, 14-5, 8-2. And it's just hard when you're shorthanded and you're trying to dig your way out of it. Um, a couple of times they've been able to fight back and make it a competitive game and even win. 
But, you know, on the road against a Knicks team that has been kind of streaky as far as its win streaks and its lose streaks, you got to keep that team off the glass because you know they're going to crash. you got to close out some of those defensive possessions with stops um, and try and get out and transition and, and go the other way. Do you, do you have a prediction for tomorrow's game? Yeah, you know what? I, I'm going to say Suns by two, but I'm not feeling confident about it. It could just be be nixed by 10. This team has been kind of in a rut recently. They played well in two of their last three games, but, um, you know, they're, they're still kind of struggling. I, I think having campaign and Landry Shamit back should help, but it's always hard to work guys back into a rotation, especially when you haven't really been able to establish one just because of all the injuries. And I, as you look around the rest of the league, and as, as I was saying, like we're, we're, you're hitting about the halfway point. Are there any, like, who would you say is like the biggest surprise to you around the rest of the league? Like where there might be sitting standing wide or a player that really stands out to you this season? Yeah, I mean, the biggest surprise to me is probably the Sacramento Kings being where they're at. Um, you know, they're only four games above 500, but they're firmly in that, in that fifth spot for the time being. Um, and they've been playing really well. Um, you know, I, I kind of figured the Pelicans would be, pretty good. I don't know if I saw, you know, number one, number two in the West good, but I, I thought they were going to make a leap this year, so that's been really cool to watch, and it's been awesome to see a healthy Zion Williamson back again. Um, but yeah, that, there's just so much talent in the league. Like, I loved the Donovan Mitchell trade for the Cavaliers, and they're a top four team in the East right now. Um, the Pacers in the East have been a huge surprise as well. Tyrese Halliburton has been playing tremendous basketball over there at an all-star level. So it's just a really fun time for the NBA with how much young developing talent there is and how, you know, there's always going to be teams that are tanking on a year-in, year-out basis. But it does feel like there's a lot more parity in the league and there's a lot more teams that are just kind of on even even footing. Yeah, I, I'm definitely with you on Hal Burton. I was, was, at, was at a Celtics-Pacers game recently. And he just wouldn't miss. We're, we're, I'm watching the upper deck. I'm like, like, like where did this guy come from? And yeah. I, he, he kind of reminded me of, I remember years ago going to a Suns game and seeing pre-knee injury Derek Rose and just watching him go off for three quarters. Just like, this guy is, this guy is incredible. And I, like, I know Tyrese Halliburton isn't Derek Rose, but he, he, like for like that, for like the, those two hours g- gave me those vibes. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's been fantastic. He's been, like I said, an all-star this season. And, um, just the way that he facilitates is on, it's an elite level right now. Like he's putting, he's doing things that like Steve Nash and Chris Paul are the only guys that have put up similar stats in certain games this season. Um, and that's a, that's an extra blow to Suns fans because they could have had him at the, in the 2000, which draft was that? 19, 2020. Uh, when they took Jalen Smith instead. So it's, a, it's a tough one if you're a Suns fan to watch. We're talking with Gerald Borgie from Phoenix Sports. Uh, looking at the other side of New York basketball, uh, the Brooklyn Nets, one of the hottest teams in the league, and I believe the Suns played them sometime in February. And I, I was a little surprised like, after they traded Harden. I wasn't sure what they were going to be at the end of from last season going into this season. And at the beginning of the year, they were hovering around 500. Things weren't going so great. They fired. They fired the coach, and Jock Vaughn takes over, and all of a sudden, they can't lose. Like, where, where, where do you see the ceiling for the Nets as they stand right now? 
Yeah, I think it's kind of finally starting to come together in terms of this team's title prospects. And it was something that we kind of expected to see last year, but they had a lot of injuries. And then Kyrie, obviously his vaccination status, clouding his ability to play in games, um, that didn't help matters. But um, there, there, it does feel like they're starting to build something. It, it feels like, you know, once they got rid of Steve Nash and went to Jacques Vaughn, things dramatically changed for them. Um, and, you know, they're, they're getting contributions from guys outside of their dynamic duo. So, they, you know, they won 11 straight. The Suns, uh, yeah, they don't play them for a while, thankfully, that they don't have to worry about Brooklyn. But um, I think they play them mid-January. But, yeah, it, it's, been, it's been impressive to watch. and It's kind of crazy to think about how far they've come over this win streak when to start the season we weren't even sure Kevin Durant was going to be a Brooklyn Nets. Um, because of the trade request and, you know, he wanted to come join the Suns and that never happened and now he's on a team that is near the top of the Eastern Conference standings and has a legitimate shot at a title. So, um, definitely a dramatic sequence, a dramatic turn of events there for the Nets in, in a good way for them. And to, just to play the hypothetical game, had Durant made it to the Suns, where, where do you think the Suns would be right now? Oh, I think they'd be top of the West. And I, I think, honestly, before Booker got hurt, they were top of the West. They were a one seed. Um, I, I think having Kevin Durant, it depends on who they would have had to give up between their young guys. You know, you want to talk Mikhail Bridges, DeAndre Aiden, Cam Johnson. Um, but if you're left with a, a trio of Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, um, and Chris Paul, plus whoever, whatever role players you have left, that's a that's a heavy title favorite in my book. Um, Booker was playing just outside of the MVP level before he got hurt. He's putting up like a 28-6-5 stat line or something like that. KD has been phenomenal, and he's inserted himself in that MVP conversation. And it would have taken a lot of pressure off of Chris Paul to play heavy minutes to, you know, bear a lot of that offensive burden uh, that he currently has with this shorthanded group. So if they had made a trade for Kevin Durant, I, I do think that would have been a move that puts them a lot closer to title contention, um, you know, sacrificing some depth for some legitimate star power. But unfortunately it wasn't meant to be, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anymore now that the Nets are uh, winning games. That is definitely true. Uh, like like you were saying, that the in your opinion, the MVP race is changing on a day-to-day basis. Who would you give the first half season as we approach the halfway point? Who would you say right like on today, January 1st, if you had a vote for MVP, who, who would your midseason MVP be? Man, that's tough because, it, like I said, it honestly, for me, changes on a night-to-night basis. But if I had to pick, like, right now, that's tough. I would probably lean Jason Tatum, but you could very easily talk me into KD. You could talk me into Giannis. You could even talk me into uh, Luka Doncic. And then Nikola Jokic is honestly doing incredible things as well. So, it's like by a hair's edge for all of these guys right now. Um, and it's going to come down to the wire because they're all playing on top four teams in their conference. They're all putting up absurd numbers. Um, like I said, it's a really great time to be an NBA fan just because of all the superstar talent they have right now. Yeah, and, and speaking of Doncic, the, the performance he's been putting up the last month or so, wow, like that, like yeah. that's like that, those are some eye-popping numbers. Oh, yeah. It's been insane. He put up the first. 60-point triple-double in NBA history and 
Um, I think he's been averaging like 45 or 46 points over his last five games or whatever it's been. Like, it's been, uh, again, another guy the Suns could have drafted and did not. Uh, so it's definitely hard to watch here in Phoenix, especially after what happened in last year's playoff series. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that you watch this like, like that, like that could have been, that could have been our guy. Like I, 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 I feel that way about Trevor Lawrence. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. Uh, but like, look, look at the other side of the coin at some of the older superstars, like guys like LeBron James, where, you know, he, like he's still really, really good, but he's not the carry a team on his back to the playoffs anymore as we see the Lakers are at the bottom of the standings. What, what do the Lakers have to do to give LeBron one more run at a title with, with the Lakers? If anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of crazy. They're six games beho- below 500 and they're only two and a half back of a play-in spot. Um, you know, Anthony Davis being out really hurts them and there's not a ton that they can do about that because he was playing at an all-NBA level before he got hurt. He was having one of his best seasons. So that's definitely a killer because they don't have enough depth or talent outside of uh, him and LeBron, even with Russ kind of looking a little bit more useful in a six-man role. But honestly, they need to make a trade. Like, they just don't have enough firepower. They don't have enough help. Um, they have those two first-round picks in the future that they can trade. Um, they have salary that they can move. They've just got to find a way to move it and bring in some help. Obviously, not a lot of teams are going to trade for Russell Westbrook on that contract. Um, but you've got to find a way to trade other pieces so that you can bring in some legitimate help. Because um, there's just – they got no – firepower on offense they've got no shooting ability and unless lebron is going off for like a 50 point triple double it's just not going to happen on a night-to-night basis for them yeah it sucks for him getting old and not and not having the a 22 year old kyrie irving to his right to to take some of the load off but you like you like we were talking you're looking at looking at how deep the western conference is how deep the eastern conference is what, when all, when all said and done, is there anybody yet that you say, like, even though we're still 40 games out, is there anybody that you say, like, I can, like, I'm, we're gonna see X team in the NBA Finals come June 15th, like this, like this team's gonna be there? Yeah, it, it's tough because honestly, I feel like there's seven or eight teams that could win the West and, in the East, I, I feel pretty confident it's going to be one of the Celtics, the Nets, or the Bucks that comes out of there. Um, I think the Cavs are a great story, and they've been playing great basketball. They'll be a tough out, but I just think they don't have the same experience level together that those other three teams have. Um, the Sixers, until they prove it in the playoffs to me, I'll have a hard time seeing them get out of the East, even though Joel Embiid is playing phenomenal basketball. He's another guy that should be in the MVP conversation as well. Um, but I, I do feel pretty confident the Pelicans are going to be a really tough team. Uh, I saw it firsthand in the Suns' first round series against them last year, and the Pelicans are a tough matchup just because they're a big physical team that also likes to attack the offensive glass. So they made that series into more of a, a football game than the basketball game, but they're going to be really tough because they're good. They've been winning at a high level without Brandon Ingram. Um, so if they can, you know, bring him back healthy and reincorporate him, they're going to be really tough in the West. Um, I, I do also think the Nuggets are a good team and the Grizzlies are 
are going to be a tough out. Um, I, I still think the Suns can win this conference if they get healthy, but with Booker being out for a month, it's going to be really tough to avoid falling completely out of their playoff spot. They're currently seventh, so they've already fallen into a play-in spot. Um, but they're, they're going to have to find a way to play 500 basketball because I do think the West is pretty wide open. There's so many good teams, but not one that really looms above the rest as, like, the heavy favorite. And one, one last one before I let you go so you can enjoy the, re- enjoy the rest of your night. Uh, like one, like we're, you're talking the Sixers and how they got to prove it in the playoffs and one of the players, like, we've seen it for a while. James Harden doesn't, always seems to miss out on that big one. Is it, and is it, is, is that a fair rep that he gets or is it, or does he, he also have to prove that he can get over that hump? Kind of like Car, kind of like Carmelo Anthony always had that, had that about him where they, they would make it far. Could, and he just couldn't finish it out. And we're, we're seeing Harden having kind of that same, that same career trajectory where he puts up incredible numbers, wins MVPs, is a great player. And just when, when the lights are brightest, he just can't push through. Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with that. I think it's mostly fair to put him in that category. I, I do think people overlook some of the really great or clutch playoff moments or games that had in his career because it's not all just you know clunkers or when the lights are at their brightest he shrinks and, and I think that was true of Melo as well um, I think Melo got a bad rep because he never really got he was never really the guy on a championship contender uh, you know the furthest he got was like the conference finals a couple times um, and I, I think that's you know with Harden it's, it's fair to look at him and, and say the same thing I do think it's overblown a little bit if you talk about you know, he had a game-saving block in a playoff series um, during the bubble. Um, obviously, it was against a, a Oklahoma City Thunder team that his Rockets should have beaten, um, and it shouldn't have ever gotten to a Game 7, but does do things like that where you're like, okay, this guy's legit, and then I think that's what makes it so disappointing when he doesn't get over the hump um, or when he has a bad performance in a, in a critical juncture of a team's playoff run. But I, I do think on the Sixers, hopefully this is a situation where he can potentially thrive because he's not the number one guy. Obviously, he handles the ball a lot, and he's still, you know, the Sixers are going to need him to put up big numbers if they want to win a title. But, you know, Embiid is the guy. That's the one that everybody's going to be looking at. That's the superstar that the ball is going to be in his hands. So I, I do think that kind of eases some of the pressure off Harden and hopefully allows him to just kind of thrive and do things in a less um, pressurized role. Well, Gerald, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Enjoy the rest of your night. Happy New Year. And hopefully the Suns put up a good performance against the Knicks tomorrow. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. All right. That was Gerald Borgate from Phoenix Sports. When we come back, the moment I've been waiting for, because it's been on my mind for the last couple hours, actually really for like the last six weeks, what happened to the Jets? We'll be right back.
You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. And we're back for the last half hour here of WGBB Sports on New York on 1240 AM and 95.9 FM. Want to give a big thank you to Jose Young, Rich Lisk, Gerald Borgay for joining me. And before I forget, because I, I, I would hate myself if I did, my man Brian Gray is behind the glass. Brian. Happy New Year. How's everything? We got two thumbs up and the point. That's a good day. So, like I said at the beginning of the show, and it's it's been on my mind, basically since the beginning of December, I, I knew something was wrong, and my worst fears about this team came to fruition. The New York Jets have been eliminated from playoff contention again, 12th straight year without going to the playoffs. The longest streak in the NFL after putting up another absolute dud of performance today on the road in Seattle against a reeling Seahawks team. They lost 23-6. to Once again, did not find the end zone. And it's just horrible to watch when at the beginning of the year, most people would have said, you know, if they finish seven and ten, that will be fine. And I agreed. I, I I would have been fine with a seven and ten season, but not like this. Like if they would have started four and six, five and seven, and finished seven and ten, okay, that's one thing. But to go from seven and four on December first to losing five straight games, and all games that in in my opinion, were all winnable games. And then to probably go to Miami next week and lose there because now you're playing for nothing. And there, there's just, I don't see any way that they're going to beat the Miami Dolphins next week. To lose six straight games, you lose all the good vibes and all the goodwill that, that you built up for the first three months of the season. And maybe some of it was smoke and mirrors on the offense because we saw that Zach Wilson clearly cannot play the position in the NFL. He got benched twice at once after the terrible game against New England and after last week's horror show against Jacksonville on in prime time. So we wonder why the Jets never get a Sunday night game. This is why. There's no reason for them to be on Sunday night football. There's no reason for them to be on Monday night football because every time the lights are on them, they wither and die. Mike White goes out there, and he, uh, he, he's going to be the savior. He has that great game against the Bears. He keeps them keeps them in the game against Minnesota, but can't get into the end zone. Keeps it close against Buffalo, but they 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 can't get to it. They're close against the Lions. They do. There's just nothing. When I look at that, the last six weeks for the Jets. It's just watching all of all of the Jets fans' worst fears coming true. 
where they just forget how to how to score. They can't move the ball, and you can only ask your defense to do so much because eventually your defense is going to get beat. Because as good as they are, you know, everybody get everybody gets a play. They're gonna make somebody's gonna make something happen, and that's what Geno Smith did right out of the gate. Three plays, seventy-five yards, a minute and a half. Like, I had barely sat down, and the Jets are already down seven nothing. I thought maybe I'd been watching a maybe I'd been watching a game from two years ago, or three years ago, or four years ago, where you know they're they're down early, they're playing catch up, and they just can never get there. And then I realized, wait, no, this is the game that's being that's on live right now, and here we go again. The phrase "same old Jets." I really was hoping not to have to ever use that phrase this season. And I have to. Because what we saw today was the same old Jets. Fighting for your playoff lives. For a team, for a franchise, for a family that hasn't seen the playoffs since 2010. Like, they've gone an entire decade. And now more. Without going into the playoffs. And you're going out there. You have a chance. All you have to do is win your games, and you're going to put yourself in a good position to be in the playoffs. And you come out like that. You give up a touchdown in the first minute of the game. That's unacceptable. Then, to make matters worse, your 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 savior quarterback, the fan, the fans love Mike White, and for and for reasons they they should. Like Mike White was. Definitely better than Zach Wilson this year. That's not even a question. But he goes out there and throws an interception on the first drive. So now you're already in a seven nothing hole. The Seahawks move the ball pretty much effortlessly again. They're down ten nothing before you know it. And the Jets just can't get the ball going. There we well, I think a lot of people wanted to see how the run game would do. And they just didn't they didn't succeed. Seventeen carries for seventy five yards, four point four yards carry, which isn't terrible, but for a lot of it, for Bam Knight, one of them was a nineteen yard carry, so really he had one long carry and then seven carries for eight yards. That's nothing. Ty Johnson, eight for forty six, his longest was twenty two. So after that he's averaging three yards a carry. So the numbers are a little bit misleading because outside of Two big runs, they really didn't do a whole lot. They were averaging two, three yards carry. Not good. Mike White completed only 50% of his passes, no touchdowns, picked off twice, lost a fumble, got sacked four times, with a quarterback rating of 47.4. That's just barely above, just throwing one incomplete pass, where that's like a 30, I think it's like a 39.8. And you did that. Fighting for your playoff lives, and you're just incapable of making the plays that you need to put yourself in a position to win. The defense just not not up to snuff, with only two sacks total. Where, like, how can you, like, how can you make that? How can you do that when you're looking? The Seahawks' offensive line is not good, and you go out there, and you can't put any pressure on Geno Smith. Not good. 
And that's been a problem for weeks where the Jets defense, it's, it's very good. And it should, and it should have been a lot better. But they can't get to the quarterback. If you can't get to the quarterback and put him on the ground, of course they're going to have more time to throw and find holes in the defense. And that's exactly what Geno Smith did. He found the holes in the defense. And it was right up the middle with the safety play. Just been horrendous. Basically all season long, the safety play has been bad. Marcus Joyner and Jordan Whitehead, and I was very excited for Jordan Whitehead to come. I thought he was very good in Tampa. I had been watching him from in college. I really wanted him to be a Jet. And I was very excited when they brought him in. And he's just been a complete no-show. LaMarcus Joyner, been a complete no-show. The corners have been good. DJ Reed, excellent. Sauce Gardner, I believe he's going to be the defensive rookie of the year. And I, dare I say, all pro. That would not surprise me one bit if he became all pro. The problem is the rest of the defense isn't holding their weight. Pass rushers not getting to the quarterback. Linebackers missing coverages, missing tackles, not turning the ball over. You can't win if you're on the field for 37 to 40 minutes because your offense can't move the ball, and then you eventually get tired and you can't get the ball back. It's just, it's a, it's a bad cocktail that just, that makes you want to throw up in the end. And that's basically what the Jets have made me want to do for the last six weeks. I go into this game, with a, with a little bit of optimism, like, okay, Mike White's back, maybe things will get better. Like, we, we know the team has given up on Zach Wilson, or at least the players have, despite what they may say. And then you watch the game, and it just makes you sick. I, I, I said it after the Minnesota game. They had seven, eight chances in the red zone. And they couldn't score any touchdowns. They had to set up a field goals. If they would have scored touchdowns on two of those possessions, they win. There's win eight. Buffalo. It's a close game. Everybody in the stadium knows that they're not going for that on fourth and one. They're trying to draw you off sides. So what does CJ Wells do? He goes off sides. There's win nine. The Detroit game. It's fourth and one. Okay, that, that play of the tight end was good. But that's got to be stopped right there. So, like, yeah, maybe they get the first down, but then you can still keep them out of the end zone. No. He goes he goes 50 yards, scores. There's win 10. Last week against the Jaguars, they just come out completely flat because Zach Wilson is incapable of moving the ball. I, I won't even say – I can't even call that win 11 because that, that's not fair because they just – they didn't show up to play. Even when they did get a turnover. They move backwards and had to settle for a field goal. It, fe- it feels like it's been six weeks since they scored a touchdown, which is not good. Like, at the beginning of the season, it was fun to watch them. E- even, even when Zach Wilson was only throwing for like 150 yards, because they had a guy like Brees Hall who was able to be that game breaker. When they lost him, they lost Elijah Vera Tucker on the offensive line. It's like the offense just stopped. And therein lies the problem. Your offense can't be one person. The Jets have three very good receivers. Garrett Wilson put up a thousand yards. Elijah Moore should be getting more receptions than he is. 
Corey Davis needs to figure out how to hold on to the ball. Like maybe he needs to talk to Gene Hackman and get some stick him. Because it feels like he's good for at least one drop every single game, and it comes at the worst possible time. Or if he doesn't drop it, he pops it up and into the defender's hands. So that's something you got to figure out. And I think that I think figuring that out might mean cutting him next season. You know, you got you got what you you got what you could out of him. Time to cut bait, move on, make Aaron Wilson your number one, move move Elijah Moore as your number two, and figure and then figure everything out from there. Because you can't have a guy who can't hold on to the ball being your number one receiver. Because that's not a number one receiver. That's a guy who is a liability. Furthermore, their tight ends I, I'm I'm glad they actually finally figured out how to use them. And I was a I was a little surprised that Uzama didn't get as many touches as he should have this year. But Conklin did impress me for the most part. He also had a couple problems with drops over the last five weeks. But for the most part, pretty reliable and I could I could live with that. The offensive line though. What a disaster. It shouldn't be where one or two people go down and then it and then it all goes to hell. I, I I know Dwayne Brown was hurt for the beginning part of the season. He didn't get he didn't get involved. Elijah Vera Tucker was playing phenomenal before he got hurt. Like Beckton not playing I, at this point I'm writing him off. I I don't I don't think we're ever going to see him play for the Jets ever again. Max Mitchell was playing well before he got hurt, and now now he has blood clots, and we we hope that he's okay and that he is able to play safely long term. But after Veritaco went down, the line was like a revolving door where pass rushers were getting to inter quarterback here with ease. And that that was no different today as we saw where where Mike White got sacked a bunch of times. Can't win games if you're if you're on the ground. And you can't win if you can't run the ball either. And I and like I said, the with 51 of those yards coming on, I'm sorry, 41 of those yards coming on two runs, 15 carries for 35 yards is not going to cut it. That's two yards a carry. I'm I'm not saying I could do that because I can't. Like I would get I would get the ball and probably run backwards so they don't so they wouldn't hit me. But you're a professional athlete. Like you should be able to you should be able to push the person in front of you. Enough so that way you're running back behind you can make something happen. Because if you can't do that, now all the de- now defenses know that you have to pass and they can put for people further back in coverage. That leads to turnovers, leads to incomplete passes, leads to punts, and let's not let's not even talk about the punter because he was he's he's terrible. Just a just a complete collapse all the way around from top to bottom. It's just absolutely unacceptable that this team shouldn't be in the playoffs right now. They should be sitting at 11 and 5, comfortably in a playoff spot. Not competing for a division because the Bills are out, outright better. But they should be sitting in the 5 spot where they, where they should be facing the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Tennessee Titans the first week of the playoffs. And where you can make the case because of the fact that one of those teams is going to go in there with a losing record, most likely, that the Jets could have been 
conceivably hosting a playoff game if the rules were different. But no. The Jets do, and they did, what they do best. And that's take the fans' hearts, stomp all over it, chew it up, spit it out, and yet we keep coming back for more. And it's time someone gets held accountable for that. Who's it going to be, though? It's not going to be the owner, because he's not going to sell as much as we all would like him to. It's not going to be the general manager, because this year I really do believe that he put together a solid enough team to contend if the quarterback play was up to par, and they didn't have a billion injuries. I, I do hold him accountable for not having a good quarterback plan in place, but... You know, he, he invested a lot into Zach Wilson and it failed. And that's gonna happen. Quarterback is the hardest position to find in football. And the Jets aren't that good at developing quarterbacks anyway. The last one that they developed on their own that was any good was Chad Pennington. I, I know Mark Sanchez went to two AFC championship games, but we all know that he was a game manager at best. And once they took away Braylon Edwards and Sean Green and Ladanian Tomlinson and Jericho Cotchery, he kind of became not that good. And the thing he's most known for is running into Brandon Moore's butt. That's the sad truth. That, in, that they haven't developed their own quarterback who's been successful long term in 25 years is really sad in today's league. Like you should be able to find one that works out eventually. And when you look at when you look at all the guys that Jets have drafted, it's not like any of them really had sustained success anywhere else after they left. They took Geno Smith ten years before he became a starter again. It took until his tenth year in the league before the, the Seahawks gave him the chance to be the starter this year. He was backing up for the Giants and the Chargers and everywhere else he went. So the Jets just aren't good at developing quarterbacks. So. How do you how do you fix that problem? Do you bring in new staff? Like I, I I think that the offensive coordinator needs to go. His his playbook is so predictable. It like I, I used to joke when Adam Gase was the head coach of the Jets that that I could have I could have been running his playbook because all I had to do was call a draw on first down, a draw on second down, throw an incomplete pass to the corner on third, and punt. Anybody can do that. When they brought in Michael Floor, uh, a Kyle Shanahan protege, all right, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what he can do because the because the 49ers seem to always have some explosive plays, and that might that may just be because of the playmakers they have. And Jimmy G took them to took them to one Super Bowl, almost took them to another. So like, if they can win with Jimmy G, like this should be able to work. With Zach Wilson, or Mike White, or even ancient Joe Flacco. One of those guys should have been able to get this team into the playoffs. But the same ugly pro, the same problem reared its ugly head. The predictable playbook that teams can figure out. Again, you see Braxton Barrios going in motion on third and short, you know he's getting the ball on a slant, or on the reverse. You know he, you can, you can call it, see it from a mile away. And it seems like the only person who doesn't get it is Mike LaFleur. 
and I, I didn't want to, I, I'm big on consistency. I, like, like, it's great to see when head, when offensive coordinators or defensive coordinators become head coaches because they've really earned the opportunity. But I'm also, I'm big on consistency and like to see teams grow with the coaching staff. And like, as they all, they all blend together and mesh together, it starts to really click. Nothing is clicking right now for the New York Jets. Not offensively, not defensively. And so, someone has to pay the price. And it's, it's not going to be the general manager. It's not going to be the head coach. Because Robert Sala, unless Sean Payton is walking through that door and says, I want this job, Robert Sala is going to be the head coach of the Jets next season. And, and I'm okay with that. I, I do like the guy. I, I really, really do believe that he can be, that he could be the guy who can lead this team going forward. But I think it's going to have to be without Michael Flores, the offensive coordinator. I, I think he, I think he bit off a little bit more than he could chew. And even with the talent that the Jets brought in this year to make this offense work, once Brees Hall went down, everything just stopped. And that can't happen. An entire team can't roll over and die and wither to absolute nothingness just because one person got hurt. That's that's not how good teams act. Good teams roll with those punches. They win that game in Minnesota. They win the game against Detroit. They don't jump off sides against Buffalo. They don't lay an egg against Jacksonville. They don't lay an egg fighting for their lives against Seattle. Good teams don't do that. You know who does? The same old Jets. And until the day that they don't do that, they will continue to be the same old Jets until I'm old and gray, until you're old and gray, until Zach Wilson's old and gray, which is going to take like another 80 years because he's only like 12 years old. Maybe that's why he wasn't good enough because he wasn't mature enough to play in this league. As we saw after the game against New England, and when he said, I'm not responsible or I don't feel responsible for letting this team down. That, that, that told me everything I needed to know. That he can't take accountability for his own actions. And that's why he's going to be one of the biggest busts in the league. Like a Jamarcus Russell. Like a Ryan Leaf. Because he can't, he's not mature enough to take accountability for his own actions. And I, I know he's 22, 23 years old. And most 22, 23 year olds don't know anything. And never had to take accountability for their stuff. But, I look at Sam Darnold. Not the greatest quarterback and another mistake the Jets made. But he knew that he had to work harder. He he went and put in the work. The Jets just didn't give him a chance because they didn't put anything around him. You know, when, when your best receiver is Robbie Anderson, who's not that good, of course you're not going to succeed. You had no offensive line. You had no chance. And then they gave you, then they gave you the worst head coach in the history of football. Of course you're not going to have a chance to succeed. But he, he took that all on his shoulders. And he held himself accountable for his actions and for his, for his misgivings as the Jets quarterback. And Zach Wilson didn't do that. When he came back, he, he did start doing that, but I don't, I don't know if he actually believes that or not. I think he's. I think he's just saying that because he knows he has to. Because if he says he's 
he doesn't take responsibility for it, he's going to get he's going to get raked over the coals again. And unfortunately, no matter what he did, he was going to get raked over the coals. That didn't involve him throwing for 350 yards and four touchdowns, because the fans now have it in their heads that he's not the guy. He got benched. He got benched in his second season for Mike White, a 27 year old journeyman who's been a backup his entire career. And you're telling me that when he, when Zach Wilson comes back after White gets hurt, that he's going to have any kind of leash with the fan base or the coaching staff? The answer is no. And we saw that. He played, he played horribly against Jacksonville. And whether White was ready or not, he was going to be playing today because there was no way that the Jets could have put Zach Wilson back out there today and expected anything Actually, they, they probably could have put Zach Wilson out there today, and it, the score still would have been twenty-three to six. So I guess that really didn't matter. It was kind of irrelevant. But looking ahead, there is no way that, that he can ever shoot up for the Jets ever again. The problem is, there's nobody that's going to take him. There's nobody, no team out there is going to take on that kind of reclamation project. And why would you? He's he's going to be he's going to be twenty-four. His confidence is completely shot. He's got a lot of bad habits to to fix. And there's the looming fifth-year option that no general manager who wants to keep his job is ever going to give him. Not at, not at that kind of 20-plus million dollar price tag. So what are the Jets going to do? Like They're stuck with him, but they cannot play him. And they have to bring in a quarterback from the outside to put this team on, on the right course. And who's that quarterback going to be? Right? In a perfect world, I would love Lamar Jackson to come. But the Ravens aren't going to let him go. They'd be stupid to do that. And they know that. They're going to give him a massive contract because they have to. Is it going to be Derek Carr? I'd be okay with Derek Carr. The problem is he doesn't play well in cold weather. Where The Jets play in New Jersey. And they play in Buffalo, and they play in New England, and they play in Cincinnati, where in De- November, December, January, it gets cold. And if you're not going to be able to play in cold weather, that's going to be a problem. Is it going to be Jimmy G? We, we know Jimmy G wins games. He doesn't do it flashy, he doesn't do it amazing, but he wins games. Are fans going to be okay with a game manager if they go... 10 and 7 and they're fighting for that, that wild card spot. I don't know. The answer is maybe. But if they win, I don't think it's going to matter. But the fact of the matter is they have to make a, they have to make a, a change and somebody's got to be held accountable because losing five in a row and probably six in a row after the promise that they had this season is unacceptable and the fans will not stand for it. And things better be better be different next year. Things better be better because we are all sick of the same old Jets and we don't want to see it anymore. That's going to do it for me tonight. I want to thank you all for listening. I'm going to thank Jose Youngs, Rich Lisk, Gerald Borgate for joining me tonight. I'll be back on again soon. Brian, always got to thank you, of course, and all of you for listening. You all have a good rest of the night and a happy new year to you all. Thank you.
The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.